Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 342 with Tom Hefner. I think you'll love this chat with Tom. Tom's the dude I mentioned earlier that I met a bunch of great folks at Podcast Movement and included this genius dude. And this is the genius dude who's talking about innovation that he knows from experience. So you're going to learn one, the seven rules for effective brainstorming, two, how to solve the hippo in the room problem, and three, some improv comedy tips that will help you innovate. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F342. And while you're there, I hope you check out some of our cool stuff like the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you access to summary insights from Tom and the 341 guests who have come before him in a handy written format right to your inbox and and a reference to the archives of, of all of them. So here's Tom's story. Tom Hefner is a design strategist at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, a podcaster, speaker, author, and innovation expert. His goal is to help people thrive at work and in life, and Tom believes that every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital to that pursuit. He shares these ideas and learnings through his weekly podcast called Next Year Now, his blog, and speaking engagements. Big thanks to Tom for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Tom. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thank you so much. I can't tell you how excited I am for our our conversation. Oh, yes, me too. Well, well, I've been very impressed by you meeting you at Podcast Movement and <laughs> all the amazing guests you've gotten to on your show. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that person turned me down. And that person turned me down. Tom, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe part of it is a bit of that connection with the, what's the, is it the Masters in Positive Psychology. Is that the name of the yeah. program at UPenn? Yeah. I told my wife, if we ever have like more money than we need, that would just be something I, fun I'd love to do is, is to go to that program. How did that work out for you? So I always tell people it was, you know, outside of getting married to my wife and having my three amazing children, it was the best decision I've ever made. Uh, and I was really fortunate. I'll just say this up front that my work, my organization paid for the whole thing. So I probably, looking back on it, the experience, I would have paid the tuition that I paid at the time. I wouldn't have paid it just because I didn't know. Outside looking in, sure. Cool. Well, and anyway, so that's a good decision you made. Uh, Another (laughs) interesting decision or caper, I don't know what we'd call it, but apparently it happened in your life at one point that you kissed Alyssa Milano. Tell us all about this. (laughs) So I wish this was a really cool story where I was like, listen, Alyssa and I were in the backseat of the Corvette. (laughs) But really... It's a little bit less cool. It's still cool, but a little bit less cool. So when I was younger and I was 12 years old back in 1992, I was a wrestler on the base of uh, Quantico, Virginia. We had a a private wrestling club there and it was a very competitive one. And we were selected to go to the Great American Presidential Fitness Workout. So we got to go to the White House. And at the time it was, I guess it was 1992. It was probably George Bush. But we got to go there and do a little exhibition, and there was other people doing, and other groups of people doing exhibitions. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. That was when he was uh, still known as the Terminator, and lots of celebrities were there, and also Alyssa Milano, who was uh, still pretty big at that time, and still big, I would say. So I'm doing my thing, and I'm we're we're doing our little rush, wrestling exhibition. And she comes along. And of course, everybody wants to get her autograph and talk to her. So I go up to her and I say, Alyssa, 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 can I, can I get your, can I get your autograph? And I'm 12 years old. And I know, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to know that she's pretty hot. And (laughs) (laughs) she says, well, listen, she gets down on, uh, bends down and and whispers into my ear. And she says, listen, if I give you an autograph, then I got to give everybody an autograph. So how about I just give you a kiss instead? Hmm. Well, listen, I didn't have to wait long for that one. And I, you know, planted one right on her. (laughs) 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 So that's the story where uh, I got to kiss Alyssa Milano. So one of my my cool, fun stories in life. (laughs) So that's interesting. Now, (laughs) you initiated the kiss after she said the words. What if I gave you a kiss instead? Uh (laughs) So it's like, just in case she's kidding, you don't want (laughs) to... 
<laughs> can but, never let that opportunity pass. <laughs> but, and that's interesting. Because, but I, by her logic, though, if you had waited and then she kissed you, then she might need to kiss everybody, which would be, <laughs> I don't know, probably worse. You, you come back with some kind of, kiss a bunch of 12-year-olds, you, you might probably have some kind of a cold <laughs> after that. <laughs> she was probably safe with our group because <laughs> well, yeah, you're super physically fit your uh, right. examples we were, we were of lean, health lean <laughs> <laughs> well, well cool so well in addition to your physical prowess <laughs> you have what strikes me as a super impressive sounding job and for for smart people so <laughs> is the, a technical categorization for the industry, I guess. Now, you work at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, which just sounds super smart. Tell me, uh, what is what does that mean and what's your role there? It means I'm the most interesting man. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so what it means is it's a, this is the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory is a, a, a UARC, and that stands for a University Affiliated Research Center. Really what it means is we're a, a Department of Defense Research Center. So we do applied research for the DOD, for the military, largely for the Navy. And we do it for other services as well, Air Force and Army. But really, it's it's a huge organization. There's almost 7,000 people that work there. We do everything kind of under the sun. I always tell people, if you ever see when uh, satellites go up into space, just recently they had solar probe, uh, the Parker probe, go up into space. Well, we build and design satellites, and we do secondary mission control, and NASA does uh, primary mission control. My buddy actually designed the communication systems for it. So this is the the satellite, the first ever satellite to go, I guess, the closest to ever to the to the sun. We build missile systems, defense systems, cybersecurity systems. We do uh, health and 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 bio. So when uh, a big thing that we're known for when returning warriors come back from war, a lot of times, especially in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, they were injured. Unfortunately, a lot of them were injured, and so. You had um, Marines and Army grunts coming back that were, they didn't have a limb. And so one of the things that we designed was a nerve innervated 26 degrees of freedom prosthetic arm, which is to say it's nerve innervated. So that means if you think it, it does it. If you want to, you want your prosthetic arm to pick up that cup of coffee, then it picks up that cup of coffee. So, yeah, really, really (laughs) cool stuff. (laughs) That is wild. 26 degrees of freedom. Explain. Well, well you need to list all 26, but I yeah, mean... Yeah, so in, in space, no. So what that means is, it, it, I mean, it's still probably not going to be, you know, artificial, you know, future of, of the a future world where it's like, wow, this is better than my real arm. But it means it gives you a lot more articulation, a lot more uh, freedom to move and use that that limb as if it was your own. It's not going to be quite the same, but they keep getting better and better. You know, they add more degrees of freedom. They add more you know, miniaturize those electronics and et cetera, et cetera. So, but I think what it does and what it, what it shows is the kind of the, the breadth and level of expertise that we have at our organization where really we can do end to end, you know, systems engineering all the way through down to microelectronic engineering and everything in between. Um, it's a really fascinating place to work. I'm really blessed to work with just the smartest engineers in the world I always tell people, I don't know how I got in. Maybe I snuck in through the back door, but. <laughs> well, that, that is really cool. And so then part of your thing is innovation, design thinking, uh, making new cool ideas happen. And so you, you do that both at work as well as, you know, teaching other organizations and teams how to do that. So I'd love to hear maybe if you could orient us to, you know, just a fun story of, a nifty new idea taking off and, and how it came to be. Mm. Yeah. So, well, let me, let me back up just one moment and say my, my background is originally in electrical engineering and I did that for like 10 years before I switched over doing innovation and design thinking, uh, design thinking being kind of one method that you can drive innovation in an organization or a project, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what I've been doing the last five years and both using design thinking, uh, to, to solve these, really tough challenges, but then also to teach it in organizations, what be it military organizations or, or other organizations. And so if I'm thinking of a really cool project, an innovation project, there's, there's a few to pick from here. What would I pick? So one, I think that is really neat. And I think 
this is going to sound self-serving because this is one of the ideas that I had. I think it's really impactful because it changed the way fundamentally that we did business or that we solved problems at the lab. And so a while back, about five years ago, our director said, hey, listen, we want to come up with uh, something to help us do better and to be more innovative at the lab. And he said, come up with something. And we proposed this idea of an innovation space. And that in itself was not necessarily that revelatory. But what we ended up coming up with was this pretty big space. I think there was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 square feet. I can't remember the exact number of different little areas or pods, if you will. So we had a maker space where you could 3D print. We had an application space where you could test, uh, where you could create and develop and test applications. So mobile applications and uh, electronic-based applications and things like that. We had a design space where you could run design sprints like Google runs or Amazon. Um, We had we even have a space where people could come in and learn how to sew on sewing machines because we build and design tactical parachutes and things mm-hmm. like that. And so building that that little petri dish of of innovation if you will was a real sea change for us because we had historically been an organization that was very conservative and traditional and you know engineers kind of just went into their office and did a lot of engineering, right? They they sat down with their uh, their books and their mathematical equations using differential equations and Maxwell's equations and all these different things to solve really hard problems. But they did it oftentimes in isolation or siloed communities and things like that. And what we did here was we created this community and started to build a culture from the ground up where it was okay to go and brainstorm on a topic or an idea that we didn't have business in, right? It was okay to go and, and try out new ideas and to prototype ideas really fast. I'm talking in you know a day or two. I'm not talking breadboarding, which is if there's you know for for all of us engineers, we understand what you know breadboarding is. But it was a way for us to build in engagement opportunities to invite everybody, not just engineers, but program managers, support staff, admin staff, et cetera, et cetera, to be part of that uh, the ideation process to generate new ideas and then to test those ideas out. And so in and of itself, like I said, it may not sound that amazing, but it was a real sea change to allow us to be more open-minded to how we do business, to how we solve problems. Because traditionally, that's just not something we did. It was very kind of linear and waterfall and just, you know, we have these analytical tools, we're going to spend our time and we're going to crunch those numbers and that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's cool. And just what, what I'm visualizing is just the sort of the physical elements and dimensions of it with the 3d printing and the app development area i i don't know what that would mean i'm imagining that we have lots of different devices like hey what's it look like an ipad what's it look like on a kindle what's it look like a kindle fire what's it look like on a samsung surface or, or is it microsoft surface Samsung Galaxy. Well, I don't know. All the devices is kind of what yeah, I'm imagining yeah. that looks like. It's like, oh, that looks sort of screwed up on this size screen. Let's fix it. Yeah, it was really neat, actually. To I'll, I'll double down on that as well. We we had drones in there so people could use drones and, and try out different things. And one of the things that was really neat was we have this, basically, it's a, a kind of a, a competitive innovation program where people can submit ideas and based on, you know, the popularity or the the merit the merits of the idea they get x number of funding and somebody said, "Listen, I want to come in here and test out guidance and control software for a satellite." Well, obviously it's pretty expensive to go and put a satellite up in space and then test out your software and you have to do things before then. So, why don't I just port it to a a drone, one of these Parrot drones and just try it and see if it works. That's a lot cheaper than building some fancy software simulator or worse yet, putting it up in space and actually learning while it's up in space. And so that was something that we had in there because we just wanted to see what can people do with drones? What can people do with, like you said, with iPads? What can people do with, we had a Connect in there, a Microsoft, uh, we still have a Microsoft Connect in there. And people were using that for um, MindFlight, which is building a flight automation system or a flight navigation system where you can control flight with your mind, right? And so there was lots of different things. Like just putting it in there, it forces people to say, well, I don't know what that is, especially if you're somebody that's like, well, I've got 30 years of expertise in radar. You know, I, I don't know how to use this connect. I don't know how to use this 
this parrot drone or whatever it is, but go in there and learn what it is to uh, use a 3D printer or a parrot drone. And what can you do new and different? Just forcing people to be a little bit outside of their comfort zone or inviting, encouraging, I guess, is a better way to say that. That's really cool. That's really cool. I, I was just thinking... You know, recently my wife and brother and I we've we've invented a couple things with um with, with baby, which yeah. you know, just little those little things in terms. Of, oh, let's take let's put a mesh fabric and Velcro and there you go. This will be handy. <laughs> and, and, and so it was just really fun to just like physically make stuff. And I and I just think that I don't know if that exists somewhere in a college course, but I think that would just be like one of the coolest courses ever. Like how to make stuff. And, you know, and we got, you know, a couple of weeks on drawing, on sewing, on coding, mm-hmm. on woodworking, on 3D printing, on electric circuits, on welding. It's just like, oh, hey, I know how to make things. I mean, that would just, I think, activate a different part of the brain. And and it seems like that's exactly what you guys are seeing there is it, it's sparking all the more good ideas and, and successful uh, evolving of ideas. I 100% agree. And I think what it also does is it allows you... You know, all innovation is, is really hypothesis testing. You have an idea, you have some hypothesis of how that idea is going to exist in the world. And so what's the quickest, most effective way that you can test that idea? And so using things, you know, like Play-Doh, using things like parrot drones, using things like 3D printing, all these different mediums, if you will, is a way for you to prototype those quickly and efficiently so that you can learn what's working and what's not working in terms of how you you know, the assumptions you have about that idea. And that's really, really important to learn early on while it's still cheap versus, you know what, we've got this idea, we're going to build it, we're going to spend a lot of money and design and make a hundred thousand of them. (laughs) Yeah, make a hundred thousand of them. And then all of a sudden, it's not what you thought it was because because you didn't get that feedback early and often when it was still cheap. I always point to the example of Amazon's 3D phone. They've, you know, there's 500,000 to a million of those things sitting in a landfill somewhere because they didn't do a good enough job of doing that rapid prototyping to say, okay, would people actually want this thing as it, as you envision it? And they didn't. So they, you got about 500,000 phones in a landfill somewhere, unfortunately. Well, that is a bummer. Yeah. Um, okay. Noted. Okay. So let's talk about design thinking. It's a, it's a hot topic. It's a cool phrase. We've had a couple guests speak to it a little bit. Uh, could you define, you know, what does this mean and, and who might want to use it? Yeah, design thinking, I don't like that term in some ways because it's, it's, it's kind of like it's jumped the shark a little bit. So I use human-centered design, but for, for all intents and purposes, design thinking, human-centered design, they're interchangeable. And what it really is for me and how I define it is it's a discipline of developing solutions in the service of people. And so let's break that down a little bit. Discipline. That means what? Practice something you do every day. It's not a one-shot vaccine. So many times people or organizations are like, I just took this course on innovation or I took this course on creativity and now I'm an expert. Well, no, you, you, it, it's a discipline. You have to keep practicing it every day. And then developing solutions. Uh, you know, if I asked everybody in the room to, to raise their hands, how many people here consider themselves a designer? Nobody would raise their hand or very mm-hmm. few people unless you're in a room full of designers. And the truth is, is that we're all designers. This is something that we do implicitly and explicitly every day you know as a parent if my kid if my nine my nine month old is crying all right well let's give her a toy maybe she won't cry like i'm designing a better situation (laughs) and so we we have to get out of that mode of thinking like no no i've got to be some tech entrepreneur i've got to be some technologist Um, anybody can design and then finally it's in the service of people and i think this part is really really important because we're not we're not designing for things. We're not designing for widgets. We're not designing for the heck of it. We're designing for people to make their life appreciably better in some way. And so I think, yeah, that's how I would define it. It's the discipline of developing solutions in the service of people. Okay, very good. Very good. And so then I'm curious when it comes to to doing some of this stuff, I think that much of the the benefit, or at least my perception, is that suddenly people are, are, are getting sort of uh, way more good ideas. And, and those ideas are actually getting to uh, take some, some shape and some life. Uh, how does this unfold? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the kind of the very public-facing benefit of, of design thinking. I think it accelerates collaboration, it accelerates decision-making, ultimately it accelerates innovation. And one of the ways that it does that is by generating a lot of ideas in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I think people... 
have to just accept that to get one really good idea, you're going to have to have a lot of ideas most of the time. And one of the ways that we can do this is through brainstorming. Brainstorming gets a bad rap. A lot of times people say it's not, it's not effective. It doesn't work. And in a lot of times that's true. It doesn't work. And that's because two things, one, they, whoever's doing the brainstorming, they don't set kind of rules and expectations for how this is going to unfold and they don't have a plan for it. So there are different ways that you can mitigate that. And one way is to just set rules, brainstorming rules ahead of time. And so there are seven rules that we use and that are pretty popular or common across the, the community. And one is, I'll just kind of list them here, defer judgment, encourage wild ideas, build on the ideas of others. This one's a really important one because oftentimes if you ask people, are you creative or are you innovative? People say, no, I'm not. That's, that's, for, that's for Jack over in graphic design. And the truth is, is that one of the easiest ways to be creative is to build on ideas of others. And that's to think about the post-it note. When the post-it note came out, it was a yellow post-it note. It was square. That was it. And then somebody said, well, what if we made a rectangular one? Or what if we made multicolored post-it notes? Or what if we made post-it notes that pop up by themselves after you pull it off? And on and on and on. So there's a variety of ways that you can build on the ideas of others. And then there's stay focused on the topic, one conversation at a time, be visual, and go for quantity. And if you follow these, it's kind of like, you know, going out on the road and getting your license. You wouldn't just send your 16-year-old out on the road without any kind of uh, rules of the road. You'd say, hey, here are the rules of the road. When you stop at a stop sign, if you're the first person there, you get to go right away and et cetera, et cetera. You give them rules of the road. And for me, this is a really important piece. You know, it's funny. We talk about building off ideas like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, I think it's for the movie Bridesmaids. They're talking about different potential themes for mm-hmm. uh, a, a shower, uh, like like Pixar. This is uh, <laughs> yes, and to, to building off of that idea, also Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes there's there's close relationships, and uh-huh. sometimes there's far away, you know, so far afield. So it it, it runs the gamut. <laughs> But so, so that's cool. And so these rules, so one of the failings of brainstorming is that these rules don't get established in the first place. And Mm -hmm. I imagine another failing is that even though we articulate these rules, uh, something in practice shows that these rules are not for real. Uh, Could you explain how sometimes that unfolds? Oftentimes you can have what I call the, the hippo in the room. If you ever heard that term, the highest paid person in the room. Okay. And so one of the reasons why, if you ever see design thinking or human-centered design in practice, you'll see post-it notes everywhere. And the reason why you have post-it notes is because the hippo in the room. People don't want to come up with ideas, especially if it's something for something politically sensitive. I was just teaching a class and doing some coaching with somebody, and they said they were trying to come up with ways to better manage their team, and they had post-it notes. And this is another problem that, that can happen, but their boss was in the session with them and they were sharing out the post-it notes. And so the beauty of post-it notes is if you come up with an idea and you capture it on a post-it note and then you put that post-it note up on the wall, well, now it's just an idea with everybody else. So even if you do have the hippo in the room, then it democratizes that participation. That is to say, the, the, you know, the boss in the room doesn't know who that idea came from. And so oftentimes, if you don't do that, what happens is if you come into a brainstorm and the boss is in there and he says, I've got this idea and this, you know, I have idea X. Well, suddenly everybody in the room likes idea X because oh, they're yeah. not stupid. That's brilliant. They know that, the, <laughs> they know that, you know, yeah, that's brilliant. That's amazing. They know everybody. Uh, they know that the, you know, the boss wants to hear that his idea is brilliant. And so by having post-it notes and capturing your ideas on post-it notes, it allows for anonymity. And it also allows for the movement of ideas so that you can start clustering ideas and you can start deriving and synthesizing themes or insights from that data. So I think the hippo in the room can be problematic. Uh, And if you're not using uh, some tool, we use post-it notes, but if you're not using some tool to democratize the participation, then that can make it difficult for the process to work. Understood. And I guess one implication of that is is make sure that the the post-it notes are sufficiently randomized in color or all the same color, because if the hippo has blue, (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, Tom has green and Pete has red. Well, then we, we've sort of defeated a bunch of the purpose. Right, right. No, you're 100% right. Uh-huh. Good to know. All right. Well, I love that. That's a very specific tactic. 
that that gets a cool result in terms of more creativity uh, flowing uh, through there is is post-it notes uh, such that it's no longer clear uh, who had the idea and and it's an idea that's democratized and it's sort of all of ours uh, which can then be rearranged any other uh, favorite uh, tactics uh, tips tools uh, stuff that that gets used here it makes a nice impact. I like doing improv exercises, and I like pointing to a specific uh, quote from uh, a great improv expert, Stephen Colbert. Uh huh. Maybe you heard of him. Yeah. And so Stephen Colbert, I, I'm, I'm, I used to be in an improv group as well um, before I had my third kid. My wife said, "Listen, that's cool that you like to play improv, but we've got a third kid. You should come home." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so three is the threshold. Uh, yeah, three is the threshold. <laughs> Two, you're okay. Three, you're done. But uh, what it, Stephen Colbert had said was, "You've got to learn to love the bomb." And what he meant was that you have to embrace failure. You have to embrace this idea of just looking stupid to other people or falling flat on your face. Because if you don't, then it's really hard to do something really impactful. It's really hard to do something really amazing or just to be successful. Because we all fall at some point. We all fail at some point. And truth be told, when you're trying to come up with a new idea, most of your ideas are going to suck. That's just the reality. And so I always know that to generate, like I said, one good idea, I'm going to have to have maybe 100 ideas that, uh, of, of which 90% are going to be bad. And maybe 10% are things I can work with. And so one, just sharing that, that quote and kind of where it comes from. But then two, actually having them practice some, some improv exercises where they, you know, a couple examples, you can tell a story, uh, a one, if you have a group of people, you can have each person submit a word. So if you still once upon a time and each person picks a word and you go around in a circle until you tell a story. And so sometimes we'll do this as, Hey, write a letter to your favorite celebrity. And it becomes quite comical, but it also sets the norm and expectation that, okay, I've got to come up with something here. Or you can do the yes. And I don't know if you ever heard of the yes. And principle. So yes, and basically saying instead of oftentimes when we submit, you know, when we come up with an idea and practice, whether we're at work or with our friends, somebody says, yes, but it sucks because of this. Or yes, but it won't work. And so using this principle from improv called yes, and when you're on stage, whatever your, your uh, improv partner throws your way, you're mentally saying yes, and, and you're building on that idea. So doing an exercise of yes, and. Uh, where you tell a story or um, you build off an idea can be really, really impactful and a way for them to just start to learn the kind of the norms or expectations of how to be more innovative, to be comfortable looking silly, to be comfortable making mistakes or looking stupid. Does that make sense? It, you know, it really does. And I, I think that's well said, loving the bomb and being comfortable looking silly or, or stupid. I, I remember I did a well, I'm in Chicago, so we got Second City here. Yeah. And I did an improv intensive, they called it. It was maybe four, four-ish days, you know, just before Thanksgiving uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago. And, and it was so, it was, it was really fun. And what was interesting was, like, I remember the first, the first day is like, okay, well, let's see what this is all about. And after being, you know, humiliated repeatedly, or like the second day is like, I don't know if I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. And then the third day, it's like, oh, let's do this. You know, I, I was, it's like, I kind of got over that hump and, and I really enjoyed it. And I was, I was sharing with my friends and family. I was like, oh, I really kind of like that. It's, it's like I got loosened up and they're like, did you need to be loosened Pete? You, you seem pretty yeah. loose to me already. <laughs> kind of already loose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I always encourage my people that I teach to go and take an improv class. Cause I think even if you don't want to do improv for the rest of your life, which most people don't, it's just a really great experience of learning to become comfortable being uncomfortable. And you have to do that when you're doing something new and different, new and innovative, because by definition, it hasn't been done before. So there are going to be a lot of times when you're trying to do, you know, build something new where you're like, I don't know if this is the right thing. I think that, or people tell you that's stupid. That's a dumb idea. And you, you're going to have that, that bomb moment where, you can either lean into it and say, okay, like back to the drawing board, coming up with some new ideas or iterating on this idea, or you can retreat and say, okay, I'm not doing that again. That's good stuff. Well, and now you also do some training and you've trained a number of U.S. Army folk on resilience. So could we hear uh, a couple pro tips in that realm as well? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give a quick backstory of why we were doing this. And so this comes out of the Iraq and Afghanistan war where basically we have a long history studying pathology and disease. And that history tells us like, we're not really that great at treating depression, at treating anxiety, at treating PTSD. And then this goes back decades, you know, decades through all the different wars. And so the idea here was, well, what if we could treat or train, what if we could train soldiers, not unlike uh, Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine, what if we could inoculate them against the psychological ills of war by teaching them uh, the cognitive tools of resilience. And so that's where this came out of. There's a really great book called The Resilience Factor um, that dives into a lot of the, um, the insights of this. So definitely check that book out. But one thing that I think is just really, really important is helping people understand a couple things. One, uh, thinking traps. So thinking traps are these things that our brain does every single day for us because we have millions of pieces of data coming our way at any given moment that our brain is filtering. And if we didn't have these kind of cognitive shortcuts, we would go crazy because it would just be too much data. And so we have things like jumping to conclusions. Well, that's good for a lot of things, but sometimes it can get us in trouble. Can you think of a time when you jumped to a conclusion that might have gotten you in trouble, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, usually I don't say them out loud. <laughs> it's like, wait, hold a second, Pete. That that has not been proven. We're, let's hold on for just a moment. <laughs> you know, just last night where I saw the dinner plate on the table after we were supposed to clean up and I'm like, dang it. Like, did, you know, did my son leave his plate there again? Like, how many times do I have to tell him? And it turns out it was really my wife. Quickly, I jumped to a conclusion that got me in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> Uh, another one is all or nothing thinking, which is one way you can operationalize this or visualize this is say, uh, you're in college and you just took your calculus exam and you failed it. And you say, man, you know what? Son of a gun. I failed that math exam. Just like I failed all the other math exams. I suck at math cause I'm always going to suck at math. Well, if that's your, your thinking trap in that moment, then yeah, you're always going to suck at it because you're jump. Well, you're, you're, you're making that cognitive shortcut when maybe you know, that morning you, you got up early, right? The, the neighbor's dog was barking and you went to bed late or you missed breakfast. And so maybe there was other things that were contributing to that poor result. And so what it's really doing, these thinking traps, these are a couple of them, uh, me, me, me thinking or you, you, you thinking uh, are some others. But the takeaway here isn't the, the, the thinking traps themselves. I mean, those are important to know, but you need to slow down your thinking, and this is a way to do it. So being aware of those thinking traps, it slows down your thinking so that you're not automatically jumping to a conclusion that might be incorrect. So that's one. Another component that I really think is important uh, for resilience training is what I call strengths-based uh, learning or strengths-based understanding your, your your strengths. So have you ever heard of uh, StrengthsFinder 2.0? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah, so StrengthsFinder 2.0 or Values in Action Survey. Helping people to understand, well, one, to identify and then to understand their strengths and how to use them more is really, really important to being resilient. And when I say resilient, I think it's important here to just kind of define what that is. And it means to your ability to uh, bounce back and push through adversities. And so one of the ways that we can do that is rely on our strengths. But most people, it turns out, don't know what their strengths are. So walking around, if you asked 10 people, the majority of them would not know what their strengths are. And it turns out that's really, really important to know because if you know what your strengths are and if you use those strengths every day and get better at them and flex them and cultivate them and use them, you perform better at work. You are, uh, you perform better in school in sports. Uh, uh, you're happier. And more importantly too, you're more resilient. So that's another one that's really, really important as well. That is a, a nice lineup there. And, and so then the teaching is, is just largely about, okay, recognize this pattern and see how it doesn't serve you so well. And here are some sort of interrupts or alternative thought patterns to go to instead so that you can bounce back all the better. Exactly right. Like help them become aware of those things and then help them to, to practice uh, getting better at them, right? That's cool. And so then I, I'm curious... Uh, what are are the sorts of results that come from this? And what's what's really encouraging is if you think about, boy, you know, the challenges you see in combat are just massive. And 
a very high potential for for big stress and and tragedy and trauma as mm-hmm. compared to you know many of my workday stresses are on a totally different <laughs> uh, lighter scale so so what kind of impact does this make in, in terms of the the results the data the the outcomes in, in doing the resilience trading no, it's a really great question. Um, so uh, it's still early in the in the data that they're pulling. What I will tell you is that this data or this program was not built as a standalone original. It was built off the back of resilience programs for, it's called the Penn Resilience Program. So in Philadelphia, they developed this program for at-risk kids in schools in the inner city. And so what I will tell you is from that data, it's positive in terms of, yeah, kids are are, are less depressed um, they perform better in schools. Uh, they're less anxious, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The data for the military is still kind of, the jury's still kind of out in part because uh, this type of uh, study, it's it's a really big, large study because guess what? When you're in the military, people can just tell you what to do. And that's one of the great things about being a psychologist in the military. You get a lot of data and it's a longitudinal study, which means it's over a long period of time. What they've found so far is that and this was a really important point, so I don't say this lightly, is that it does no harm, which is really important because there were a lot of psychologists that when we first started this program, they thought, hey, like, you know, you're kind of playing a little bit of uh, a little bit of like God here. You're, you're introducing this intervention and you don't know if it's going to negatively impact somebody, to which I'd say they're right. I mean, we didn't have the data yet to show that it wouldn't harm them, although it was built on a program, a very similar program with similar concepts and verbiage that was rigorously tested and that hadn't caused any harm. But, you know, fair enough, uh, fair criticism. And so the first thing was, okay, let's evaluate that, make sure that we're doing no harm. And so uh, for sure, like no harm was being done, which was really good. And so I think uh, over the next, I'll say three to five years, the data will come back and say, you know, probably fairly definitively whether it's helping or not. I think anecdotally, just speaking with, People that we've taught uh, that have, you know, we've stayed in touch with or that have become part of the training programs later, you know, it's been life changing for those people. But yeah, the jury's still out on the on the military side, at least on the domestic side. We're teaching in, in schools and things like that. The same program that has been a, a positive result. Yeah, cool. Well, we've had a lot of good stuff here, and I'm I'm curious. You got a, a podcast called Next Year Now, which is how we met over at Podcast Movement. What's that show all about? And and are do you talk about design thinking, innovation, creativity, resilience, or or, or what's sort of like the the main idea over there? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So the the show, the tagline, I like to say it's uh, it's based on the belief that everyday purposeful habits and practices are vital for us to thrive at work and in life. And so we interview world class experts and what they do and try to uncover the habits and practices that have fueled their success. And so I'd say it kind of spans three major areas, one being health and well-being, one being uh, business and entrepreneurship, and then another one being personal development. And so what I would throw into personal development as well as creativity, innovation, and things like that. And yeah, we've, we've, uh, we've interviewed uh, a few people on innovation and creativity. One in particular that had a pretty big impact on my life is Adam Grant. So he's the author of uh, Originals, which is a book all about understanding how people become innovative leaders and thought, you know, basically icons, people like uh, Elon Musk and the, those cats. And yeah, so it's, uh, you know, we, we cover the gamut uh, from that. And then also people that help out with... Um, in some way with your health and well-being. And so I would throw resilience in there. We interviewed um, Corey Mascara, who talks about meditation and kind of uh, the impact that that can have on your ability to be resilient or not. So uh, cover a lot of ground there, but it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, well, kudos on your top-notch guests. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for <laughs> for the future. Uh, where that oh, takes one thing uh, that might be of interest uh, for you all is that uh, when we just talked about meditation and uh, and resilience and things like that is uh we we have a um a book review of a a book called the upside of stress by kelly mcgonigal so uh it's a fantastic book if you haven't read it i highly recommend you read it um lots of really great tips and insights on how to get better at stress how to you know uh combat stress counter stress but also work with it and i think that's pretty useful uh information in there but if you want to get some of the the high level insights and things like that, um, you can go over to uh, nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 
awesome. So for your listeners, they can get a uh, download the 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 free book review, and it's just a, a nice way to pick up some some tips and tricks to to uh, help with stress. Well, cool. Thanks. Well, now could you share with us uh, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Favorite quote. Hmm. Uh, you might remember this one. Uh, I don't know if you were in the session at Podcast Movement, but it was, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember exactly, but if you don't build your dream, then somebody else is going to hire you to build their dream. And when I first heard that quote at Podcast Movement, it kind of it kind of blew me away, in part because I've spent 15 years you know, working for somebody else uh, until recently and starting my own business. And so I think that's just a, a really... Fantastic. And we're not all meant to be entrepreneurs. We're not all meant to, uh, to, to go that route. But I think it's just a nice way to remind us that we all are, we all have that ability. We all have that possibility to create something special in our lives. And so, yeah, I think that's my favorite quote. That is cool. Yes. And, and, and within that, you know, I, I would say that, well, I, I guess entrepreneurship worship <laughs> is something that, that, that I feel like I, I encounter in the podcast. Most of my pitches are actually for, uh, that I receive are for guests who have, you know, built a business or done something impressive in terms of going from $10 million or to $10 million in just two years. Wow. You interview this guest. And so, yeah, it's very impressive. That's cool. And I'm, I'm happy for them, but you know, it's not quite as much of, of a fit here, but what I dig about that that dreams perspective is that you know, I think it's very possible to be you know building a dream or contributing towards the achievement of your own dream as an employee, you know, either because mm-hmm. you're you're developing skills that you're going to go use to go off and be on your own, or just like the nature of, of what you're doing re- requires you know a whole lot of people to create. And I'm thinking about movies, TV, or sort of. Uh, building uh, a rocket ship <laughs> or, or inventing <laughs> a, an iPhone or, or something. It, it's sort of like, this is going to be a collaborative with, uh, with a ton of people and, and, and you have a part of it. So, so yeah, I, I think that that quotes a nice challenge. You totally for, Hey, are you, is your career really, you know, bring you forward on your dreams mm-hmm. or is it not? And, and not that the reaction is, well, if not, you got to quit and start your own, your own company. <laughs> But uh, to to gut check it and and say yeah, this this is really what is possible for um for you while earning a living. Yeah, and I think it's just if nothing else, if you take nothing else away from that, just be more intentional about what you want to do. Because if you don't, and and like I said, this doesn't have to be an entrepreneurial perspective. Just in your career, if you're not intentional about it, your career will just happen to you. And when it just happens to you, sometimes good things happen, but sometimes things you know good things don't happen, right? And so just being more intentional about going after your dream. And that can be within the context of working in an organization or working for somebody else. It doesn't have to be entrepreneurial. Oh, that's good. Your career happens to you. You know, hence the, the title of the podcast, Happened to Your Career. We had Scott Barlow on the show. Yeah. And, and so that was, that's a good one. Uh, happened to it. Awesome. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say positive psychology. I spent years studying positive psychology. I think that's my my favorite thing to dive into when I read books. It's typically around something positive psych oriented, whether that's gratitude or you know compassion or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think positive psychology is probably probably my jam, if you will, and my probably my favorite practice or one of the things that I think is just really, really important is what I call, uh, you've heard it in different things, but I call it hunt the good stuff, which is basically uh, the the three blessings exercise. Whether you do it by yourself or whether you do it with your family, I like to do it with my family at dinner time, where we say, hey, uh, what are three good things that happened today? And, and why'd they happen? And so that's something that's based out of uh, research from positive psychology. And it turns out that it has uh, a pretty robust and lasting effect on your well-being, i.e. that makes you happier. And so it's just something that we do uh, every night. And I love reading about those types of pop psych, social psych data and research. And how about a favorite book? Book. Apropos of nothing that we've talked about, (laughs) a book called Shantaram. Have you heard of it? I don't think I have. How do you spell this? S-H-A-N-T-A-R-A-M. No. And it's by a guy named, if I get the name right, Gregory David David Gregory Roberts or Gregory David Roberts? I can't remember. But it's a really cool, uh, it's a fictional book, but it's kind of autobiographical as well. 
And it's about this guy who was in academia. He was a PhD student in philosophy and he gets into drugs um, like heroin and other things. And then he starts robbing banks, gets caught. This is in Australia and he flees. He, well, he gets caught, he goes to prison and then he breaks out of prison and he goes to Bombay and becomes uh, and he lives in the slums and runs in this world of the mafia, but also is kind of like the, the this patron saint, if you will. It becomes because uh, he had some EMT training. He you know, there's no doctors there. And so he would help uh, the people in the slums. And so he became this person that everybody would bring their sick children or people to. And and it goes through this whole story. And And there's a lot of writing about you don't know if it's truly autobiographical or what parts are fiction. But I think what's really cool about it is, um, so being being a psychology guy and being a, a positive psychology guy, this will come as no surprise. There's a lot of philosophy that's laden in this book with just gold nuggets of uh, what does it mean? You know, what does good and evil mean, really? Uh, what does it mean to live a good life? And just a really fantastic book. Uh, great, great writing. Uh, word of warning, it's also, uh, I think, about 999 pages long. So <laughs> it's not a short book, but it, I, I love the book. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Favorite tool. Hmm. I love, I dig Canva. I don't know if you ever use Canva. Oh, right. The graphics. Yeah. For somebody that, I don't know if you've ever tried to use uh, Adobe Photoshop or Adobe InDesign. I mean, unless you have like a PhD in graphic design, I feel like those things are impossible to use, or maybe it's just me. So I really like Canva because I have to make different graphic designs and things like that periodically. And I think Canva is just a really neat tool that, in a way, democratizes the graphic design for the rest of us non-designers. <laughs> cool. And how about a favorite habit? Favorite habit. Oh, so here's probably my favorite habit. I would say uh, meditation or if meditation's not your jam, I also do coherent breathing. Have you ever heard of that? I don't think I've heard that exact pairing of words. I, I could guess what that means, but I'll let you take it away. What's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I say meditation because I, I, I've had a lot of uh, great results and just uh, it's helped me tremendously, both my, my kind of my psychological well-being as well, well as my physical well-being. But a lot of times people are like, look, I don't like, I'm not a yogi. I'm not a Zen master. I don't really want to do the whole meditation thing. And I'll just tell them like, look, if that's not your bag, if that's not your jam, well then just do some deep breathing. Uh, and just the act of deep belly breathing can be tremendously positive for your physical and emotional and psychological well-being. And so it's called coherent breathing. If you Google coherent breathing, you'll find different patterns and things like that. There's a four, seven, eight pattern. You breathe in for a count of four, you hold for a count of seven, you exhale for a count of eight. That's not as important. I think that the most important thing there is just you breathe out longer than you breathe in. And it forces you to have these deep belly breaths that uh, calm your nervous system. And just I've, I've seen it firsthand where people are just really, really nervous. Like I've, I was up on a ropes course and the lady was freaking out and her legs were shaking so much. The, the platform was shaking and she's like, why is the platform shaking? Why is the platform shaking? And the instructor says, hey, well, take a look down. And she looks down. And he's like, your, your legs are shaking. So she's like, oh, you know, she's super nervous. And he says, look, just just take some deep breaths. She did that for two, two and a half minutes. And I'm sure she was still nervous, but she wasn't freaking out anymore. And so that can be really, really helpful to help de-stress you, to help set the stage for a really good day if you do it in the morning. So I always recommend do it when the first thing you wake up, do it maybe over lunchtime and then do it right before you go to bed. Awesome. And tell me, is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they tend to repeat it, retweet it? I don't know if it gets retweeted a lot, but I think one that connects with my listeners a lot is this idea of essentialism. And you've probably uh, heard, of, uh, heard of it in some fashion or form, but the idea of like cutting out the, the non-essential in your life. So many, now more than ever, there is no shortage of things we could do, ideas we could pursue, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to cut through uh, the non-essential to that one or maybe two things the, to pursue is really, really important if you want to be successful. And Tom, if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, you can go to the Next Year Now podcast website, which is nextyearnowpodcast.com. Or if you're interested in learning more about design thinking 
and innovation, you could go to TomHefner.com, which is uh, my consulting site for, you know, where I talk about the work that I do and uh, the the teaching that I do with design thinking and human-centered design. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would really say, you know, embrace that that quote from Stephen Colbert. Learn to love the bomb because this it will help you in all aspects of life, whether it's work, whether it's in relationships, whether it's, you know, in, in, in friendships or sports or whatever it is, when you can embrace that, when you can embrace failure, when you can embrace bombing, you will be more successful than other people who can't. Awesome. Well, Tom, this has been a ton of fun. I wish you and the Next Year Now podcast tons of luck and keep on rocking. Pete, thank you so much for having me on the show. I love this conversation and I can't wait till we get to uh, catch up in person again soon. I really like Tom's point about how do you address and democratize the idea sharing and evaluation when there's a hippo, the highest paid person in the room. I keep thinking about what letters I have to capitalize in those words to make it spell hippo. But that's handy to think about in terms of, hmm, there could very well be a dynamic at play associated with you don't want to offend somebody or you want to look good or you want their approval or or even if it's subconscious, it's like, well, I kind of respect that person. He's smart. And he's gone very far or, or she is just in charge. And thusly, I naturally think things coming out of her mouth are more brilliant maybe than they are to have that process in which we anonymize where the idea come from and how do we, you know, rate, assess, evaluate those ideas. So post-it notes are not just for consultants to seem like they're doing something different and earning their money, but they actually serve a, a very useful practical purpose in that way. Good stuff from Tom. Hope you dug that and more. Again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep342. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do so, you'll make sure to hear from our next guest. It's Stacy Boyle. She's talking about how to become more strategic, what that means, the benefits, what you might be overlooking, why it's useful. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 